Romans chapter 7, verse number 18. All right, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, uh, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Okay, that's the bad news. Now let's talk about the good news in chapter number eight. Verse number one, there is therefore, Paul speaking, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak uh, through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Verse number six, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, if that was confusing to you, do not worry. Uh, we're going to talk about this, uh, these two these two chapters. But uh, what I ask you is, how many of you have ever had to deal with uh, animals tearing up your, your, your yard or your house. Uh, okay, so some of you have had to deal with animals tearing up your yard or your house. Uh, I don't know, maybe it was squirrels, rabbits, raccoons, God forbid, rats, you know, mice. Uh, we've all had to deal with stuff, or you've heard of someone who's had to deal with uh, these kind of infestation problems. And, and so years ago, I used to do landscaping. Landscaping used to be my job, and we used to take care of a football field. And this football field was surrounded by, by desert. It was just this football field, and surrounding this football field was desert. We had to take care of, among other things, this football field, make sure it was green, taken care of, it was ready for people to play, uh, play on the field. And so this is what we did. Uh, this is what we did a, a large portion of the years, take care of this field. But it just so happened that every spring, this particular field, because it was out in the desert, it became, um, it became essentially a housing development for ground squirrels. Every spring, the, the, the ground squirrels saw that it was green grass, it was nice ground, it was freshly watered, it was nice soil. They decided in the spring, like, oh, this is a perfect place to start our family. How about we settle down here? So they dig burrows under the field, and uh, they start their families there. It's essentially KB homes for ground squirrels. This is what this, this area was. And so we had to deal with this because this is a serious problem. You have ground squirrels, and these ground squirrels, they know how to dig. These ground squirrels dig, and they dig deep under these football fields or wherever they are. These ground squirrels, if you've ever seen a ground squirrel, they have claws like little baby velociraptors. I mean, it's like they popped out of Jurassic Park, only they're cute and furry. And so we're having to go after these, we're having to go after these, uh, these ground squirrels. And so we try to, I know this sounds mean, but you got to do what you got to do, right? you got to take care of the field. So we, we try to smoke them out. We put smoke bombs. We had some guy, we put smoke in him. I don't know how he did it, but smoke in him. Try to smoke them out. That didn't work. We try to flood them out. So we try to put, you know, the, the hoses down in the burrow. We try to flood them out. That didn't work. The most effective way to get rid of these ground squirrels was to, oh, and that's the other thing we did, was we tried pellet gun. We tried sniping them from a distance. That didn't work either, although it was very, very fun. So what we had to do, the most effective way to get rid of these little dudes, was you had to, uh, you had to set the traps. You had to get traps. You get bunches and bunches of traps. And these traps, you'd set right next to the entrance of their burrow. 
And these, these, the entrances are burls. They're, they're pretty, they're pretty big. I mean, that's the reason we had to get rid of these things is because if a football player was to walk into one of these, these little holes, I mean, they could, they literally break an ankle. And so we're, we put the, uh, we, we put the cages all over the field at the entrance of their burrows. And inside the little traps, inside the cages, the cages, when, when the cages closed, it didn't kill the, the squirrels or anything. So just in case you guys think we're, we're, we're morbid or mean or something like that, they just got locked into the cages, okay? But the cages, inside the cages, we had uh, we had seeds in there. Sometimes we put cheese. Best thing you put in there, pro tip, best thing you put in there is peanut butter. Who doesn't like peanut butter, right? Even squirrels, brown squirrels like peanut butter. So we put peanut butter in there. And uh, the, the, every once in a while, we, me and my friends, we would, we'd watch from a distance. Because they'd know if you were there, so we had to watch from a distance. If we watch from a distance, every once in a while, you see a little ground squirrel pop his head up, right? And you'd see him walk over inside, going after the peanut butter. And there was a few of them, not a lot, but there's a few of them who got, I don't know how they did it, they got around the trap. They were able to get around the trap. They didn't snap the trap, and they got the peanut butter, so it was kind of a loss for us. We had to put more peanut butter in there. But most of the time, 90% of the time, little squirrels, they'd go in there, they'd spring the trap, and they'd get locked in there because they just couldn't help themselves right next to the entrance of their burrow. Easy food. There's peanut butter right there. They could not resist the temptation of the peanut butter. The reason I tell you that story is because we deal with that same situation in our life. We are confronted with that same dilemma in our own life on a daily basis, sometimes on a minute-by-minute basis, hourly-by-hourly basis. In our own life, we deal with temptation, this desire to to grab the peanut butter, so to speak, to go after the seeds, to go after the things that we know we probably shouldn't. And that's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7, chapter 8. He's talking about this some, this thing in us, that this inclination in us to go after the thing that's tempting us. Paul struggled with this same thing. Wherever we go, whatever we do, Whatever we are trying to do, temptation is always there with us. Just as, just as in the burrow, right at the entrance of their burrows, there's always these there's cages all over the entrances. Right when we leave our house in the morning, there's temptations. Sometimes even when we get out of bed in the morning, there's something tempting us. Whatever it is, you know what it is. There's something tempting us. We can't get away from it. We have good intentions. We try our hardest. We try to be good. We try to do good. But there is something in us that is inclined to give into temptation. Paul struggled with this same thing. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse number 19. He says, the good that I would not. Okay, what's he saying there? Because that's already confusing. The good that I would not, the, the good stuff that I want to do, the, 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 the good intentions that I have. I want to do right. I want to I I be right. I want to grow. I want to progress in my Christian life. Or just even as a human being, I want to do the right thing. For the good that I would, I do not. All those good things that I want to do in my life, he says, I don't do them. I want to do good. I want to be good. I have good intentions. But my actions are different than my intentions. All the good things I want to do, I don't do them. And then he says, the evil which I would not, the evil things that I don't want to do, the things that I know will hurt relationships in my, in my life, the things that I know will hurt my job, the things that I know will hurt my, my thought life and the, my, hurt my life in general, those are the things that I do, that I do. Now, he says, now if I do that, I would not. Now, if I do the things that I don't want to do, if, if temptation faces me, I'm confronted with temptation, I give into that temptation, even though I don't want to give into that temptation. It's not me that's doing it, he says, but sin that dwells in me. He's saying I have this natural inclination inside of me that wants to do bad stuff, that wants to do stuff that's not good for me, that's not in my own self-interest. He's saying that's not me because there's something in me that doesn't want to do bad stuff. 
but I do do it. And so he's saying that there's this, there's this tension, and that's sin nature. That's the sin nature that we all have. That's the broken thing inside of us. He says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. So Paul understands this dilemma that we all have. Paul's describing here our sin nature. No matter how hard he tried, he gave into temptation because he had a fallen, sinful nature. The problem is not our intentions. The problem really isn't, isn't even how hard we try in life. The problem is the thing in us that is fighting against our desire to do right. The thing in us that is working against who God wants us to be. You see, at one time, there is this part of us that wants to do right, and there's this other part of us that doesn't want to do right, and we end up listening to that part of us. We know things said in the heat of disagreement will hurt a relationship, yet we say them anyway. We know certain thoughts and actions are destructive, and yet we sometimes think and act in those destructive ways. Sometimes we lie when we should tell the truth. Sometimes uh, we get angry when we should be patient. Sometimes we indulge when we should resist. We intend to do good, and we intend to be good, but there is something in us that's fighting against those intentions. It's like we have this little monster inside of us. You, you ever seen a cartoon where the, the one character, maybe Bugs Bunny or whoever, they had the little good Bugs Bunny right here, the angelic one, they had a little halo and he had wings, and there's the bad one right here, and he has the pitchfork, and he has, you know, I don't know, maybe a mohawk or whatever. He's the bad one, right? Inside of us, there's this, there's this dual nature. There's this sin nature. There's part of us that wants to do wrong, and there's this part of us that wants to do right. And Paul is saying here, that the part of him that, that is broken, the part of him that's sinful, the part of him that has a desire to do the things that are hurtful, he ends up following that part of himself. It's this, this dilemma, this conundrum. There's something there that tries to prohibit our good decisions. It's like whatever we do, something is always there with us, fighting against us. And Paul summarizes all of that in verse number 18. He says, for I know that in me, in, in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will, to, to do good, the desire to do good is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. So that I want to do good, but that this evil thing that is in me, this, it, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to get over it. So we're in a predicament, right? We're in, a, we're in a dilemma. We're in a situation. We want to do good, but we are bound to our fallen sin nature. It holds us captive. So what do we do? That's where Romans chapter 8 comes in. This is, just, this is great because in Romans chapter 7, Paul's explaining the terrible struggle between who he is and who he wanted to be, who he is and who God wanted him to be. And uh, in chapter 7, it's, it's dark, it's depressing, it's discouraging. He's saying all this stuff, in my flesh is no good thing. I want to do good, but in me is no good thing. And so he's describing the monster that lived inside it. But when we get to verse or chapter 8, everything changes. And you see a stark contrast, like dark to light from, from dust to dawn. You see the stark contrast. He's describing the monster that lives inside him. And then when you get to chapter eight, everything changes because Jesus changes everything. Look at verse number one. There is therefore now no condemnation. To who? To who is there no condemnation? To those who are in Christ Jesus. He's saying all that stuff we were talking about in chapter number seven, all that bad stuff, our sin nature, if you are in Christ Jesus, none of those things condemn you anymore. None of those things can be held against you. You no longer uh, receive the punishment from your sin because of those things. Christ on the cross changes everything in our life. We are no longer bound to our sin nature. You see, we have... We have victory. We have salvation because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It no longer holds sway over our thoughts. It no longer desires a monopoly over our desires. The cross gave us 
Salvation from the punishment of sin. That's what Jesus did on the cross. On the cross, Jesus released the stranglehold of destiny, our destiny, to spend eternity apart from and separated from Jesus Christ. He broke the stranglehold of destiny and he broke the will of fate, the fate that we all had to spend eternity apart from Jesus Christ. He broke the will of fate. We have been saved from the punishment of sin because Jesus took our punishment for us on the cross. Yes, sin remains but it no longer ruins because of Jesus Christ. So I don't know if you guys ever been, you guys ever had jury duty before. Uh, I've never had jury duty, but I've been in a trial before. I wasn't the one on trial, thank the Lord, but I was in a trial, and I was I was I was one of the witnesses. Kind of a cool story. I'll get into it later because I don't want to brag. But I was in this trial, and, and the prosecutor, who was the good guy in this in this in this in this story, uh, he, he was asking me questions about everything that happened in the. the things that I saw, the things that I did. And he was asking me uh, about the guy that was, that was being prosecuted, the defendant. And he was asking me questions about this particular individual. And he's saying, well, do you remember things that went on? And, and I knew he was guilty. Everybody in the room knew that this guy was guilty. He did what he, what, what he was being accused of doing. He was a bad guy. He was not a good guy. Ended up getting 100 years in prison. Bad situation for him. I knew he was guilty. Everyone knew he was guilty. The judge knew he was guilty. I'm on the witness stand. I tell everything I know. I leave. A couple minutes later, I hear on the news this guy gets sentenced to prison. What's the point of the story? It's because that's who we were. Standing before God, the judge of all the earth, guilty before him because of this sin nature. Without defense, our sentence was eternity separated from God. We stood condemned. But imagine in that moment, imagine you're in a courtroom and you are being sentenced by the judge. And he says, you have a life sentence. You, you are guilty. You have no recourse. You have no more appeals. You did what you did and you are guilty. Imagine you're in that courtroom and you have just been sentenced to a lifetime in prison. And all of a sudden someone stands up in the back of the room and he says, judge, I know this person is guilty. I know Dominic is guilty. I know he deserves everything that's coming to him. I know he deserves a separation from everybody in society. I know what he deserves, but I want to take his place. I will take his punishment. I will take his place. That is what Jesus did for us on the cross. He took the punishment for our sin. That's what Jesus did. That's who we were. We stood condemned, but Jesus came to us. He stood up and offered himself in our place. He took our punishment. He took our condemnation. That's why when we come to verse number one in chapter eight, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation because Jesus took all of it in that courtroom. He served the sentence we should have served. Jesus gave us salvation from the punishment of sin. We see this in Romans chapter five, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. What's he talking about there? Paul's talking about scarcely. If you've, if you've ever um, seen the best person in your entire life, Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you just maybe it's maybe it's Gandhi. And someone asked you, would you would you trade places for that person if they were going to die? If you knew that person was going to die, the person that you value more than anybody in the world, you would you'd say, yeah, probably, yeah, right, yeah. If it's one of my kids, my spouse, yeah, I'd probably die for that person. Now you take the average person that that's on the street, that's that's you you walk into Sam's Club, Costco, McDonald's, wherever later on today, and you take the average person, you say, would you die for that person? You'd say. Well, no, I don't know the guy. Why would I die for him? He could be a bad guy. He'd be a good guy. I don't know this guy. Why would I die for him? Then if you were to go to a jail, supermax prison, take the worst guy in that prison, you say, would you die for him? I think all of us would say, well, no, I would never die for that person. 
Yet that's what Jesus did. He took the worst of us and he died for that. He took all the condemnation that we deserve. Christ wiped the slate clean. We no longer have a record. When God the Father looks at you, when he looks at me, he says, I do not see a record. The great judge, when he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. No condemnation. One day when we see God, he will not be pointing his finger at you. He will not be pointing his finger at me. He will be opening his arms to us. Maybe you're wondering, what does this have to do with temptation? What does this have to do with Romans chapter 7? What does this have to do with dealing with temptation? That's a good question. Let me show you. Look at verse number 2. Look at verse number 2. After he says there's no more punishment from uh, sin, God has saved us from the punishment. He says, for the law of the spirit of life, what Jesus has done for us, has made me free from the law of sin and death. So in verse 1, Paul tells us that on the cross, Jesus saved us from the punishment of sin. We no longer stand condemned. God looks at us and sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In verse 2, Paul tells us what that means. In a word, this is what it means. Freedom. See, if we no longer stand condemned before God, Jesus has saved us from the punishment of sin. We now have freedom. We are no longer bound to our sin. We have freedom from it. Jesus has given us salvation from the punishment of sin. Because that is true, Jesus has also given us freedom from the power of sin uh, in our sin nature. He took the punishment of sin and broke the power of sin. That means you no longer have to give in to the temptation. That means that however big and loud and imposing that temptation is in your life, it does not have control over you unless you give it control. It does not wield uh, control over you unless you allow it to. The tyranny of sin has been broken, and that means victory is yours regardless of the temptation if you want it. If we have been saved, we've also been made free. So I don't know what you know. I don't know if you know what this week is. Lots of years ago, really before I was born, there was the Cold War. How do you guys remember this? The Cold War. Okay, so some of you remember this. I won't hold that against you because that means you're a certain age. But some of you remember the Cold War. I don't remember it. I was born essentially at the end of it. And the Cold War was when uh, Soviet Russia, they wanted to get control of uh, essentially all the world. And they built the Berlin Wall. They built the Berlin Wall to separate East Berlin from West Berlin. This is after World War II. And this wasn't to keep people out. This was to keep their own people in because of the repression and the oppression and everything that they were doing to innocent people. They, they had no freedom in East Berlin and in, in the communist bloc and all the, the places that communist Russia controlled. This is a, a picture of the Berlin as it was being constructed. And you can't see it now and you wouldn't be able to see it for many years to come, but you would see people walking freely on one side of it. And then on the other side of it, the, the Soviet side, you would see the dreary and the drab buildings and people with their heads held low and You'd see there'd be, there'd be uh, sentry guards posted up with guns and they'd be holding their people in. It's not like people wanted to get in. They were holding their people in because they had no freedom. They had no, uh, they had no life. They had only oppression and repression until, until 30 years, I think it was yesterday, the Berlin Wall, Berlin Wall fell. It, it broke. It crumbled. People could no longer. And the, the reason this is so huge is because it marked a, a, a break between uh, Soviet Russia, this, this communist country, and the free people that wanted to have uh, freedom in the world. It, it, it marked all these people that lived under oppression. 
now that this, this wall had been broken, people could come freely across and live in freedom and live how they chose. Well, that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. Not only did he take our punishment, but he gave us the ability to live in freedom from sin. He allowed us, he made us free from sin so that no longer any temptation that comes your way, any sin that you are tempted with, you are no longer bound by that sin. You are no longer oppressed by it. You're no longer controlled by it. It no longer holds sway over your life. You have freedom from it in Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing. That's what Jesus did for us. You see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. See, and I'm here to tell you this morning that whatever temptation you're dealing with, it doesn't own you. Whatever thought you wish you wouldn't entertain, you don't have to. Whatever habit is keeping you from your family or hurting your family or hurting your relationships, it does not have power over you because of Jesus. Sin is not inevitable. In Romans 8, it only gets better. Jesus has saved us from the punishment of sin. He broke the power of sin. But look at this in verses 3 through 5. Look at this, look at this. Because it only gets better from here. For what the law could not do. See, we, 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 could not, we could not keep the law. We could not be righteous in ourselves. In that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. It's an amazing statement. He condemned sin in the flesh. Sin, which was condemning us, is now condemned itself of God because of Jesus Christ. An amazing statement. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. In verse one, Jesus gives us salvation from the punishment of sin. Verse two, he gives us power over sin. He doesn't stop there, not even close. In verses three, he gives us the strength to fight the presence of sin. He's broke the power of sin, no longer holds sway over our lives. Now, even though sin is still among us, we still are tempted. He, is, uh, he gives us the strength to fight that presence. The same power God wielded on the cross to crush the power of sin, he has given to each uh, one of us. God took sin's punishment. He broke sin's power. Now he helps, uh, he helps us fight sin's presence. The moment you trusted Christ, you were given the Holy Spirit, and with his spirit, we have been given the Spirit's strength. Why is it that you can defeat temptation? Why is it that you can have victory over sin? Because the same one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in each one of us, and he empowers us. Let me put it to you this way. I have with me a cord. How many of you guys ever played tug of war before? You guys played tug of war? Okay, if you, if you haven't, you're missing out. If you haven't played tug of war before, and I, have, I, I need some help with uh, this particular uh, demonstration, if you want to call it that. I want to illustrate to you how God gives us strength. So I, I'm going to need a little help. Uh, Mike, do you mind coming on up here? June. So, okay, one, one of you guys at one end, one of you guys at the other end. You hold that side. And this is tug of war. You guys, this is simple. You guys, you guys know this. Tug of war is when you guys are both pulling, right? You guys don't have to actually... I know you guys are strong. We, we all understand you guys are strong. Dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, don't, don't hurt anybody. Uh, but tug of war is when you're trying to pull. He's trying to pull his direction, and Mike's trying to pull his direction. And whoever pulls the hardest and gets him to fall into, gets him to cross the line, right? That's whoever wins. That's us. You see, 
One of us is on one side. All of us are on this side. We're trying to fight temptation. We're trying to fight sin. We're trying to go and move the direction God wants us to go. Whatever that sin temptation is, that's on the other side. Sorry, June, that you're the sin temptation in this one. <laughs> Somebody's got to be, right? So there's, there's, there's all of us on this side. We're trying to fight temptation in our own personal lives, individually, or even our own family. We're trying, to, we're trying to fight sin, fight temptation. Sin and temptation, they're on this side, pulling and tugging. And every time we think we get a little bit of distance, it pulls us back. Every time we pull away, it pulls us back. So what's the answer? What do we do? This, this, is what, this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 7. He's saying, when I want to do good, sin is present with me, pulling me in the opposite direction that I actually want to go. So what's the answer? The answer is this. Jesus took the punishment for our sin. He broke the power of sin. Then watch this. He gave us his own strength to fight the presence of sin. So even though Jesus has broken the power of sin in our lives, we still struggle with temptation. We still struggle with sin. But the difference now is that Jesus has given us and empowered us with his own spirit and his own divine strength so that it's not just one person. It's not just you fighting temptation anymore. It's not just you fighting sin by yourself anymore. It's the Holy Spirit of God fighting the temptation, fighting the sin with you, for you, so that it no longer holds sway over your life. You see, that's why you can fight temptation. That's why no sin has power over you unless you give it to it first. Because Jesus Christ is with you every step of the way. You may not be strong enough, but every single time, he's strong enough. He will make a way when there seems to be no way. Thank you guys. You guys can have a seat. Let's give him a hand. That's what Jesus did. That's, this, that's the whole point that Paul is trying to make is that when sin is present with me, so is Jesus. When temptation is confronting me, the Holy Spirit is confronting it. And we have now an ability, the, the freedom to choose which one we will listen to, whether we want God to fight with us or not. I don't know what is tempting you today. It may be anger, it may be pride, it may be selfishness, it may be materialism, it may be stubbornness, it may be a habit or an activity or some compulsive behavior. It doesn't matter what is tempting you because you have been given the strength to fight it. Maybe you're wondering, because we have the strength. We have the strength from the Holy Spirit. How do we access that strength, right? That's the obvious question. How do we access that strength? It's great. The Holy Spirit is here. He can help us. We have sin, temptation, all of that. What do we do? How do we access? How do we apply this to our life? How do we activate this strength? Good question. In Galatians, it says to walk in the Spirit. We just, we just read that. Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit. And then we just read Romans 8. It says to mind the Spirit. It says to mind the Spirit. The spirit. We fight temptation when we mind the spirit, it says. But what does that mean? Mind the spirit. And we can fight temptation. We can fight sin. We have victory over temptation when we mind the spirit. I don't know if you guys ever rode on the metro before. You ride on the metro and you, you, you're about to catch your train and uh, your particular, your, 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 where you're at, where you're supposed to be, you, you catch your train and uh, you're on the platform, right? You're on the platform between you and the platform. Is, uh, is, is supposed to be this, the, the metro car. It's supposed to get on the metro car. But here's the thing. After the platform ends, there's a gap between us and the car. Sometimes it's small, sometimes it's big, depending on the metro that you ride. 
There's a gap between uh, the metro car and the station platform. And if someone who's a little bit older or someone who has some type of disability or, or challenge uh, physically, they could potentially trip in between the metro car and the station platform. They could hurt themselves, twist an ankle, break an ankle, something like that, fall down into the metro car. Uh, so you have to be careful. You have to watch that. In, in England, if you go to England, they have, they have a, a, a really nice uh, way to fix that problem. On the station platform, in big yellow letters or big letters, as you get to the end of the station platform, right where the metro car is going to be, uh, there's, this, there's this sign that says, mind the gap. So between the station platform and the metro, there's this gap. You could fall into it. If you've ever been on the metro, you know this. You can twist an ankle or whatever. So it says, mind the gap. What does that mind the gap mean? It means watch the gap. Watch the gap so you don't fall into it. Saying it, big, bold letters, mind the gap, watch the gap, watch out for it, focus your attention on it, especially if you have, a, you have sometimes the, the tendency to fall, tendency to trip, watch the gap, keep your mind on it, focus on it. That way, when you step over the gap into the metro car, you're able to walk over across it without getting hurt. Mind the spirit and you will fight temptation. Watch the spirit, focus on it. You say... You, you, don't, it's not saying focus on the temptation. It's not saying focus on the sin. Focus on prayer. Focus on scripture. Focus on family. Focus on friends that will bring you up. Focus on uh, God's word. Focus on worship. Focus on church. Focus on those things in your life. Mind the spirit and you will not fall into temptation. You will not fall into sin. When we mind the spirit, we do not fall into temptation. You see, that's how we find victory. We fight temptation when we focus our life on Jesus Christ. When we focus our life on prayer. When we focus our life on scripture. You can picture it another way. Picture you have, you, have, um, you have a bunch of people around you, and they all represent different things. You have a bunch of people around you, and one person represents prayer. One person represents scripture. One person represents your family. One person represents your friends. One person uh, represents worship. One person represents uh, the memorized scripture. One, one, another person, and all these people surrounding you that, that represent prayer and all these different things, they're surrounding you. And there's another person that wants to break through and harm you. That person's name is temptation. When you're surrounded by prayer, you're surrounded by uh, worship, you're surrounding yourself with scripture, surrounding yourself with, with family and, and positive influences, it's going to be a lot harder for that person to break through. It's going to be a lot harder for temptation to get through to you because all those people are surrounding you and you're focusing your attention on those people, on those things, not other things, not temptation. You see, when you are focusing on all those things, it's very hard to focus on temptation. When I have a prayer time with God in the morning, when I have a prayer time with God throughout the day, when I am constantly reading his scripture, filling my mind and my heart with scripture, filling my mind and my heart with positive influences, it's filling my life up with all of this good stuff so that temptation no longer has a way to get in. You see, mind the spirit. Watch it. Focus on him. I want to show you why this is so important. I want to show you why this is a big deal. Look at verse number six. For to be carnally minded is death, bad news, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So Paul here gives us the ultimate plan of sin, the end game, the end game of sin. It's death. It's death. This is the end game. The end game is death. It's loss. It's brokenness, broken relationships, death of a dream, the, the, the loss of trust. That's the pain of sin. That's the price of sin. That's the ultimate plan of sin. That makes 
sense to us. We get that. But then Paul says, the end game, the ultimate plan of God when you fight temptation is life and peace. I get life. God wants to give us life. He wants to give us eternal life. But peace, that's kind of... It's kind of confusing because when you are tempted by something in your life, whatever it is, the reason you're tempted by that thing is because you think it'll make you happy. You think it'll be nice. You think it'll be pleasurable. You think it'll, you'll enjoy it. If temptation didn't tempt you, it wouldn't be temptation anymore. The whole point of temptation is that you will enjoy it if you, uh, if you give in, if you indulge. So when God says here, if you resist temptation, if you fight temptation, you're going to experience peace. Well, you would think it'd be the opposite of that. You think that, and this is what most people think, Christian or not, and think, well, I fight temptation. I can't do fun stuff anymore. I can't enjoy my life. God's saying here, if you fight temptation, you have victory over sin, you will live with peace. Why does he say that? You ever, um, you ever had a messy house before? You can say you currently have a messy house because of your kids or, or because of your husband. <laughs> So you guys have all had a messy house before, and this might affect some of you ladies uh, more than men, or this might affect some of you neat freaks or some of you people with OCD. If you see a messy house, you can't deal with it, right? You have a messy house, you have a messy room. It drives you absolutely crazy. This is my wife. She'll be up at the crack of dawn, and she'll be cleaning the house. What's, what's, there's, it's clean in here. She just can't deal with the messiness. So it has to be clean. She cannot rest unless there's, there's cleanliness, until there's, it's absolutely spotless, until everything's vacuumed, and there's lines of the vacuum in your house. And you guys know what I'm talking about. There has to be the lines. There has to be the lines in the vacuum in your house. Okay. And so she, without, if there's a messy house, dishes, dishes in the dishwasher, dishes in the sink, can't deal with it. It just you, it drives you up a wall, right? You can't relax. There's no peace in your life. You get cranky. You get angry. You get mad at your family. You get mad at your kids. You get mad at your dog. You get mad at everybody. It's messy. So what do you do? Do you leave it there? Even though it's nice to just leave it there, you don't have to do any work. You just click on Netflix, forget about all the trash around you. Yeah, that's nice. But what happens when you clean it up? What happens when you start to go around your room, go around the house, and clean up all the messes that aren't yours, and you start to wash all the dishes that you didn't dirty, you start to wash all the clothes that are your husband's, and, and you start to do all this stuff, and you clean up the house, and finally you get it spotless clean, just the way you want it. Then what happens? Then you're able to sit down with a cup of coffee and relax. Oh, everything is clean. At least for five minutes, right? <laughs> everything is clean. You can sit down, you relax. It's like someone's taken a gigantic burden off of your shoulders and you're able to relax. There's peace. Everything just seems to be brighter. Everything seems to be happier. You could say that there's peace in your life because everything's cleaned up. When temptation is, is messing up our life, when we're living in temptation, living in sin, it might be nice, it might be enjoyable, but you're always miserable. You're never happy. At least not happy in the way that God wants you to be happy. Not happy in the way that you truly want to be happy. But when we clean up our life and we say, I'm not going to give in to temptation. I'm not going to allow this mess in my life. I'm not going to allow this sin to have dominance over me. And I clean up. I focus on the right things. I, I make sure that the house of my life is clean. God says you can have peace. What does that peace look like? The peace that comes from trust. The peace that comes from uh, knowing that you have nothing to hide. The peace of less internal struggle. The peace of better decisions, healthier relationships. The peace of no guilt. The peace of no shame. 
the peace of a clear conscience, and the peace that comes with trust. That is what we truly want. Let me leave you with this, this, this verse. These things have I spoken unto you, Jesus says, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You know, there are a lot of earthly things we desire in this life, but the spiritual desire behind all earthly desires is peace. No temptation can.